welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So we have a famous story, a well-known account. And for this Sunday, as the last Sunday of Advent, as we prepare to celebrate the Incarnation, the birth of Christ, I, I wanted to just simply take time to relook at this story draw out a few points, but not really elaborate a whole lot. I think sometimes it is useful and important to use the pulpit as an opportunity to to exegete the scriptures and apply it to our lives and, and to see how practically it can work out. And I think sometimes it's just really good to hear the story. And just let us soak in it. And so I want to look at our gospel lesson and in that focus on this part about the naming of the Christ child and what it speaks to us about fulfillment and about God's presence. It starts out in verse 18 in our reading and it says, Now... The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way when his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's important because it's easy to jump over to verse 18 because verses 1 through 17 in Matthew's account can get kind of boring. It's a lengthy genealogy going from Abraham up until Joseph and Christ. And it's easy to jump over because I think sometimes, especially in our kind of culture and mentality, genealogies don't matter as much. But Matthew was very intentional to start his story the coming of Christ, his gospel in that manner, because Matthew was setting a scene very intentionally that this coming of the Christ that now he is to speak of, this birth of the Messiah and what he is about, what he will do, is part of a much larger story. A story that flows through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through David and Solomon, through giving of the law and disobedience to the law, from exile and return from exile. That all of this was leading to and pointing towards 
its ultimate fulfillment. In this baby that was inside Mary's womb. It says that they were betrothed, that they were engaged, that Mary and Joseph were set to be married. But it's important to understand what this works like because engagement in the first century Jewish culture is not the same as engagement for us. Engagement in that time was essentially marriage that was not consummated. It's called Kedushin. And in that, it was treated with great severity and importance. One of the uh, compilations of oral teachings that was compiled starting in, in, in the 3rd century, but goes back to oral teachings that would have been in the 1st century, the Mishnah, speaks of adultery or unfaithfulness during Kedushin as being worse than adultery after marriage. And in their oral tradition, they treated it as being as severe as if a man had intercourse with his biological mother. This was not something that is treated lightly. Also, as a note, poor Joseph, we don't get a ton about him in the narrative, so I don't know a lot about him, but I'm pretty sure he's not an idiot. Like, Mary's pregnant. Like, you know I mean? It's not like he's, he, 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 he kind of knows how that happened, and he knew it wasn't him. And as much as modernists like to try to portray ancients as all being superstitious, ignorant people, um, even ancient people without the science and biology knew that women didn't just become pregnant without a man involved. And so what you have is Joseph in a predicament. And what I find is extremely interesting is then we see in verse 19, Matthew says, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. What I find is so interesting is that Matthew says that, that Joseph, being a righteous man, the Greek dikaios, just and right. Why, why would he say that? Because the law of Moses commands capital punishment for unfaithfulness in a condition. The Mishnah requires stoning to death. And sure, by the first century, some rabbinic teachings from some of the streams of Judaism had, had kind of tampered the harshness a little bit. But it's still required to be faithful to the law, to Torah. If one was caught in this, they must be put to public shame and humiliation. Matthew says, Joseph being a righteous man did not hold to the letter of the law 
which actually is starting into something that I think Matthew carries throughout his book. Said Matthew is very focused on this idea of fulfillment. And if you read through Matthew, there's a reoccurring trope and theme that he records Jesus continually saying, You have heard this said, but I say to you. That somehow, Jesus fulfills the law and draws us to its greater purpose that's behind it. And so Matthew speaks of Joseph, who didn't hold to the letter of Torah, but was called righteous because he cared to show mercy to, at that moment, a woman he believed brought him horrible and great shame. And then in verse 20 through 21, he writes, But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Throughout Scripture, names matter. Either being given by their parents because of certain things, but at times also being dictated by God because of the meaning of their names. I always feel bad for if you were a, if you were a prophet's kid, because they usually had really weird names. Because the prophets would name their kids after certain things. So, like, for instance, Isaiah named his one son quick to plunder. Because he was to be a sign that God was going to give them favor over the northern kingdom. And then his second son was named Return from Exile. So you could have different names and they had intentional purposes behind it. And we see that the angel of the Lord did not allow Joseph to go through a first century baby name book and pick one out. He said, you shall name him Jesus. Jesus in, in, in the Greek is Jesus. In the Hebrew, Yeshua. And this theme of fulfillment, I think, carries into the naming of Jesus in multiple ways. I remember whenever I was an undergrad and was in my fourth year of New Testament Greek, and for the final, in that, in that Greek class, um, we just had a chunk of, of Scripture in Koine Greek, and we had to translate. And I remember sitting down to translate, and as I'm translating, I'm noticing that 
Jesus, I'm translating Jesus, Jesus is leading a great army and slaughtering a bunch of people. And, um, and I'm really questioning my interpretation because I was not that good at Greek. And so I'm still interpreting, interpreting. Well, I eventually found out after the final that my professor, so that we didn't know you know, memorize a verse and then be able to just do that. He took a passage from the Greek Septuagint from the book of Joshua. Jesus is the same as Joshua. It's the same name. I got like 80% right, but I was correct. Jesus was slaughtering people out on the battlefield. It's Joshua. And I, and I share that because we, we see that in many ways, Jesus is fulfilling that lineage. Speaking of him being the true successor of Moses. Fulfilling all that Mo- was initiated in and through Moses. And you see the theme within the book of Joshua that reoccurs over and over again, first stated in Joshua 1.9, is this idea that for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The theme of God with us. Also, we see that... Matthew, make sure that if you don't know Hebrew well, he clarifies what Yeshua means. Means that God will save. Yahweh saves. Is literally what the name means. And yet he says something that would have been unexpected. He says that Yeshua, that Yahweh is going to save his people but save them from their sins. That's not what they were looking for or expecting. Not deliver them from the great evil scourge of Rome. And there was many things that were in need of deliverance, healing, oppression, injustice, He said that the Messiah has come first and foremost to save them from themselves. And this is important because it's not that Yahweh does not care about all those other things, but all of those other things are mere symptoms, byproducts of a deeper root issue. An issue and a threat that is not outside, but within. The rebellion against God by trying to play God. And then we have, in verse 22 through 23, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I find it interesting first because 
we just read the angel say, you should name him Jesus. And then we have Matthew quoting Isaiah, and he shall be called Emmanuel. You know what I mean? It's almost like, like, like maybe had a middle name. It was like Jesus Emmanuel Christ. You know what I mean? But it, it, it's weird and strange, but again, Matthew is pointing towards this importance of what this signifies. Fulfillment. The Greek word means to bring to its intended completion or fruition. That all that was has existed to point toward this moment. And if you have read any about this, there is actually quite a bit of controversy surrounding this right here. Because in context, Isaiah 7 is most likely not speaking about a future Messiah. But the Syro-Ephraimatic War, in which two kings of the north were joining together to come and attack Israel or Judah. And God told, speaking through Isaiah, that there would be a sign. And in that sign, this child, before the child is even old enough to know good and evil, that those two kingdoms will be wiped out, which did occur. And also, there are those who will bring up that it appears in context that Isaiah does speak about his own son in, as, a, as the child who this is being fulfilled with, calling him Emmanuel. And then in the Hebrew, the word Alma, which is translated can mean a young unwed woman, it can mean a virgin, or it can mean just a young woman. But in the Greek Septuagint, which was the translation of the Hebrew into Greek a few centuries before the coming of Christ, they interestingly chose the Greek word for virgin. That always means virgin. So what do we do with this? I mean, it's easy just to like ignore all of this. It makes things nice and happy from the pulpit. But what do we do? I think that actually it makes it even more profound and beautiful in understanding the richness of the complexity of how God's word all points to this Messiah Jesus that Matthew says he fulfills. First, the apostles were first century Jews. They were not modern Western people. They did not interpret scripture through what most hold to today, which is called authorial intent hermeneutic. That you figure out what the author intended it to mean, and then that's exactly what it means. But instead, what we see is that they were following the practice of making sense of Scripture in light of what had just happened. What is called a Christocentric 
hermeneutic. The hermeneutic that Jesus taught on the road to Emmaus, where he went back to all of the scriptures and said they all talked about him. We know that every passage in the Old Testament was not a messianic prophecy, and yet it was all about him. And so, in Matthew's mind, everything was just a foretaste and a foreshadow that pointed and directed its way to this moment. The sending of the Christ, the Messiah. That's why he has that genealogy in the beginning. You see in Matthew continually over and over again references to Old Testament passages with this word, that which was written so that that which was written might be fulfilled. See, because he's seen the entire story of God's redemptive activity in history, it all points to, is a reflection of, and finds its fulfillment in the life and work of Christ. I mean, you look at Matthew, he, he, he quotes from, from Hosea, and it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And he said, points to when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up out of Egypt and says, this is to fulfill that. Well, if you go back, you know that that's t- speaking about Israel. So was Matthew an idiot or wrong? No. Because Matthew believed that the fullness of Israel was embodied and fulfilled in Jesus. So what was spoken of Israel was just pointing towards an even greater reality. And I find it interesting because it's actually quite powerful, apologetic for the fact that of the virgin birth. As N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop and New Testament scholar, points out, is from all of the rabbinic writings that we had, none of them were reading Isaiah 7 as a messianic promise. And because of that, there would have been no reason why Anybody would make up a story about a virgin birth to fulfill a passage that nobody thought was a messianic passage. What does make sense, though, is there was a virgin birth. And then you have Matthew and Luke looking back at the scriptures and saying, oh, my gosh. This was here all along, and we didn't even know it. They were responding to a reality that happened. And so then in that, going back into the scriptures and seeing how that reality was reflected back. As I joked, it said that his name will be Emmanuel. God with us. I think there's so much beauty in the two names of Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And Emmanuel, God is with us. God has not abandoned us. The visitation of the angels, the incarnation in the womb of Mary, 
the naming of the Christ child all points to God's faithfulness and Christ's fulfillment. That the entire story of God's redemption, scripture, history itself, all foreshadow and points to this very moment when a peasant woman is with a little baby in her womb. When God dwelt among us, the creator of all that exists, the ground of all being, the one who is above all, took on flesh, humbling himself as a weak and vulnerable baby. Emmanuel. But not only that, not only did God dwell with us, not only is he Emmanuel, he is Yeshua. The one who is going to rescue us from ourselves. Not taking on a womb, but taking on a cross. This gospel story starts with God revealing himself through the frailty of an infant. An infant that the surrounding community would have assumed to be a bastard child. And ends with God fulfilling his story of redemption in another place of frailty and vulnerability. Stripped naked on the cross, hung to die like a violent criminal. He is Emmanuel and he is Yeshua. He is the perfect and ultimate sign that God has not abandoned us. God is faithful. And God is fulfilling all that he has done and pointed towards. And in many ways, that is what we come on Sundays to do, is to be reminded of that reality, because we need to be reminded continually and constantly. That he is Emmanuel. That though he has risen to the right hand of the Father, he said, I will be with you always. He has sent his Holy Spirit to be in our midst. That's what many of these symbols are supposed to remind us of. The cross, we do not bring the cross up and down because that piece of metal has any significance or meaning other than it's supposed to be a reminder that when we gather together to worship, Christ is in our midst. I don't know how it works, but we see that St. Paul tells us that in the Eucharist, there is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, that somehow he is, he is not physically, we don't believe that, but he is with us, present in our midst. That when we gather together, it's so important that we gather together. I don't know why fully, but for some reason, it's when we're gathered together that in a particular way, Jesus promises that he will be there. Emmanuel. And every week, we give confession, receive absolution. Every week, we are reminded of the comfortable words that come from God's word of his grace and his forgiveness. Every sermon, if you notice, I, I keep preaching the same thing. It keeps going back to the cross. Because that is the heart. And so every Sunday, 
we need to be reminded that we not only have Emmanuel, we have Yeshua, our Savior, whom is delivering us from ourselves. So the Christ is Emmanuel, the Messiah is Yeshua. All things point to him and are fulfilled in him. Scripture says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the sole source of our hope and our redemption. He is the final and perfect sign from God that he has not abandoned us, but is with us and will remain with us as he reverses the destruction we have caused and puts all things to right. That news that Joseph and Mary got was really good news. And Christmas is almost here. When we celebrate that unto us a child was given. Emmanuel, Yeshua, our Savior and Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection.